We're coming to the end of Luke chapter 1 this morning. Luke 1 verse 57 to 80. And this then also is the longest chapter in the Gospel of Luke. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing. Our Father in heaven, we draw near to the throne of grace. We're such feeble creatures, Lord. One day we're like Elijah on the mountaintop and the next we are in the valley. We are on Mount Horeb running away and hiding. And I pray that you would, as you did for Elijah, have mercy on us and speak to us in a still small voice. Open our ears. Lord, we become hardened in our hearing. We become deaf so quickly, not hearing your voice and heeding your voice. And we pray that you would now open our hearts and open our ears to hear and then to respond with willing hearts and obedient members of our bodies. In Jesus' name, Amen. The theme I've chosen for this passage is Jesus, our hope and heart's desire. A couple of years ago, I remember the, the paper headlines of uh, Pierre and Yolande Corky, South Africans who were kidnapped, who were taken captive by Al-Qaeda in Yemen, and they were imprisoned. And they were imprisoned, they were in prison for many months, longing and hoping for someone to come and rescue them. And that is also how the believers in the Old Testament were. Uh, it's as if they were sitting in the dark, waiting and yearning and longing for the Messiah to come and save them. And so you can imagine what joy it was when John the Baptist appeared on the scene and started crying out in the wilderness, started preaching, the Messiah is here, the Messiah has come. And so we can understand why the birth of John the Baptist was a reason for many to rejoice. So really it wasn't about John the Baptist, it was about John because he pointed to the Messiah. John was like a road sign saying, Cape Town, 30 kilometers after you'd, you've been on the road for 16 hours. So let us first of all look at John's birth, and that is in verse 57 to 66. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all the neighbors. And all these things were talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea. 
And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Now you know how it works when there's a big music concert of some famous singer, a world famous singer. There's always a pre-show. So there, there's, there's some less famous singer that opens the evening or opens this concert uh, before the main singer appears on stage. That is exactly how John the Baptist was. John the Baptist is the pre-show. John the Baptist uh, prepared the people of Israel. He prepared their hearts for the Messiah's coming. And so his birth was important. Uh, John is born, verse 57, the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, meaning nine months later. But not only nine months later, the exact timing, the exact time that God determined in history for John the Baptist to be born. And then all the family comes, the family's there, the neighbors come, and they're there because they've heard that Elizabeth has a son, verse 57 and 58. Uh, and they all hear this, what has happened and how the Lord has shown mercy. They know she is barren. They know she's an old woman. She cannot have children. And suddenly they all realize this indeed is God's great mercy to her. And so they rejoice with her. They're really glad. And they've all come for the circumcision, verse 59. Now, circumcision, as you know from the Old Testament, was really a symbol made in a, in a baby boy's body. A symbol that God would cut the sin from the hearts of his people. So the circumcision itself is just a sign, as Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 tells us. And they were circumcised baby boys on the eighth day, as we see in verse 59, uh, according to what God commanded Abraham in Genesis 17, and God commanded Moses in Leviticus 12. And so babies are, are baby boys circumcised on the eighth day because... On the eighth day, when the foreskin is cut off, vitamin K is the highest. The vitamin K levels in the body are the highest, higher than any other day. And so blood would clot very quickly. So you wouldn't keep on bleeding and bleeding and bleeding and bleeding. Uh, nevertheless, so they're here for the circumcision of John, little John, baby John the Baptist. And they want to call him Zechariah. So what's the name we're going to call this kid? How, how will we call him? And they say in verse 59, you're going to call him after the dad. And Elizabeth says, no, his name is John, as we see in verse 60. And the family, you know, they say, but why? None, none of the relatives is called by this name, verse 61, like people still do. Many parents are very unhappy if, if their kids name the grandkids and the grandkids don't have the grandfather's name or the grandmother's name. And so the same year, why didn't you call him Zechariah after his dad? And so now they ask Zechariah in verse 62. So now they use hand signs, like deaf language, trying to figure out what does he want the kid to be called. Now, Zechariah can't talk. We know this from verse 80 to 20, because he was unbelieving. He did not believe the angel Gabriel when Gabriel predicted John's birth, because they couldn't have kids. So he thought, how is this possible? And so he said, I want a sign. And the sign was, all right, here's the sign. You won't be able to talk for nine months. And so it happens. But it seems he's also deaf, as we see in verse 62, because they make hand signs to ask him questions. And he asks for a writing tablet. So it was a little wooden board, almost like a cutting board, maybe a bit, probably a bit thinner. 
And then there was wax. It was covered with wax. So he would write in the wax. That's literally what the Greek word here means. And so he writes, verse 63, he writes the name John. And they wonder, they are amazed. Because he couldn't hear Elizabeth say John. And he says exactly the same name. He writes that same name. Obviously because that's the name the angel gave. Um, in verse 13. And immediately, the moment he does this, writes the name, his tongue is loosened, his mouth is opened, verse 64, and he starts praising God. So the song we read of later on, verse 67 to 79, that's the song he now sings. He praises God. And everyone is amazed at this miracle that has just taken place. They fear. They are in awe and wonder, verse 65. And everywhere... The news spreads and the people start talking about it in the whole hill country of Judea, says verse 65. I can almost hear children. You can almost see them lying in bed. The oil lamp has been put out by the parents and the kids lie in the dark in their room. And they're talking about this. And you see parents sitting up in their bed before they go to sleep talking about it. And shepherds in the field and uh, families around the dinner table and women in the market and neighbors over the fence. Not that they had fences, I guess. And... Um, and just when they visit friends, sitting, chatting, sitting outside, visiting, they're talking about this. And on the Sabbath, outside the synagogue, before they go in or after synagogue is finished, you see people talking about this. And not only talking about it, even thinking about it. Verse 66, they laid them up in their hearts like Mary did the news about Jesus, the, the, the news the shepherds gave. So the same year, they, they're meditating on this, thinking about it, filling their minds with it, wondering, says verse 66, what this child will be. Not who he will be, but what he will be. What's his destiny? Why is he here? And then time eventually would tell, says Luke, as a, almost an editorial comment at the end of verse 66, um, the hand of the Lord was with him. It, it did come out later on that, that God's mighty hand was on John and on his life and on his ministry. And so, in the same way, God's hand will be on you. His hand will be on you if Jesus is your heart's desire. So don't slap his hand. Don't shove his hand away when he, when he puts forth his hand to save and to save you. Otherwise, God will destroy you with that same hand. Uh, it's a fearful thing to fall into these hands, the hands of the living God. Rather, rather trust his hand. Rather look at his hand like a slave looks at the hand of his master until the master does him good. In Psalm 123, 2, look at the hand of your master. See the marks, the imprints of the nails in his hands, these hands of love. See your name written and engraven in the palms of his hands, Isaiah 49. And let that melt your heart so that you desire him more. Second, so that was John's birth, number one. Number two, Zechariah's song of praise, or Zechariah's hymn. Verse 67 to 80. Let us read. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. 
that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him with fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way, into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in, the, in spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Will a father who has now had his firstborn son, will a father, a new father of the firstborn, go and tell everyone about someone else's child? And how wonderful this other person's child is? Or will he speak of his own child? Well, Zechariah doesn't speak of his own child as much as he does about the Messiah. Because he knows through the Spirit that his own child is only important because he has come to announce the coming of the Messiah. So it's all about the Messiah Zechariah's song, really, he only mentions John, his own boy, in connection with the Messiah. And now we see Zechariah filled with the Holy Spirit. He gives this prophecy about the Messiah. Verse 67, you see him filled with the Spirit. And he prophesies and he praises, verse 68, the God of Israel, because through the Messiah, God has come and visited his people. Verse 68. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. He has visited and redeemed his people. How has he done so? Verse 78. Because the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us. The sunrise is the Messiah. He's the son of righteousness. He visits us. So God visits us through the Messiah. And he does not only save his people from other people, from wicked people, from People who are the enemies, he also saves them from sin. Verse 68. He has visited and redeemed his people. We know that he has come to redeem us from sin. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And God comes. The Messiah really is like the horns of a buffalo that rams a lion to save us from the lion's mouth. Verse 69, he's raised up a horn of salvation. Horn is a symbol. Horns are a symbol of strength, like you see in First uh, Kings 22, verse 11. And so he saves us from the enemy. So this Messiah that saves us, he's from the house of David, it says in verse 69. So it's very clear he's not talking about John the Baptist here, because John's from the tribe of Levi. Um, but Jesus from the tribe of Judah. He's from the line of David. And we saw that in verse 32 also, where the angel said to Mary, 
he will be given the throne of his father David. And that's what the Old Testament prophets prophesied. That's what they predicted, verse 70, as he spoke, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. We get this in 2 Samuel 7. We get this in Psalm 132, 11, Isaiah 7, 14, 9, verse 5, 11, verse 1. All these prophecies saying the Messiah will be born, born of a woman, born from the line of David. He is the king, and he's come to rescue his people from the enemy, from the hand of those who hate them. In verse 71. Now, the hand of those who hate us and our enemies, he's not talking about the Romans. It's a much greater deliverance. It's a salvation. It's a redemption. It's a deliverance, a rescuing us from the world, rescuing us from Satan and from sin and death and hell. He rescues us from slavery. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. He has overcome the world. No more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son through whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He has delivered us from death, from the slavery of death, the fear of death, Hebrews 2. And the Son of God has appeared to break the works of the devil. And he who believes overcomes the world it's our faith in the son of god christ overcomes the world so through the messiah through the messiah god now fulfills that covenant that he swore with an oath he swore to abraham um, that he will show mercy as he promised to our forefathers verse uh, 72 to show mercy the mercy promised to our fathers to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. And, and that is a very, very certain promise when God makes a covenant. He swears it with an oath. It's something that cannot be broken because God is faithful. Now, the, the, the covenant he made with Abraham, the oath he swore in verse 73, was really a promise that he would give him many descendants. Your offspring will be great and through you they will be blessed. We find that in Genesis 2, 17 and 18. And that is fulfilled not only in Israel, it's fulfilled in Christ. It's fulfilled in Jesus who saves millions of sinners, millions, hundreds of millions into the billions. He saves them from every tribe and language and people and nation. And we know this from Galatians 3, 16. Christ is the offspring of Abraham. And so now the blessing of Abraham has come also to the Gentiles, Galatians 3.14. And we see the great fulfillment in Revelation 7 verse 9. A multitude that no man could number from all nations. Just to summarize it for you. So it's very clear that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, did not bring a new religion. He's not the founder of a new religion. So it's wrong to say, as a Muslim, or not a Muslim, a Hindu once told me, that Christianity is the baby religion. It's a baby religion. Hinduism is thousands of years old, 5,000 years, and Christianity only 2,000 years. That is false. It's false. Because verse 72 and 73 said, Christ is the fulfillment of all these promises made in the Old Testament. And we know that the promise already starts in Genesis 3 verse 15. And so the religion of Abel and Noah and Abraham and even Moses is not Judaism or something else. It's Christianity. It's a belief in the Messiah who would come, in the Christ who would come. Jesus fulfills the religion of the Old Testament. 
the true religion of the Old Testament. So why, why does God, why did he send the Messiah to come and save us? All these promises that he would come and save us. Verse 74, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. It's, it's not a, a slavish kind of fear when we serve the Lord, this, this fear like a slave that is under, serving under a dictator like Pharaoh. No, we're delivered from this fear of evil and the fear of our enemies. Rather, it's a joyful fear. It's a joyful service. It's a joyful service that he has now delivered us from the hand of the enemy and he has given us the privilege of serving him. Him, our loving God, our loving Father, our loving King. And so we're not fearful. And please do not be fearful. You see all these messages going around on Facebook and WhatsApp, people saying that the triple six will now be in the COVID-19 vaccine and this is the mark of the beast and the government's going to force you to take it and all of that and Christians start becoming afraid. Where's your hope in the Lord? Where is your faith in the Lord who will not allow his children to be snatched away from him and snatched out of his hand by the evil one? Where's your faith in the promise of Romans 8, verse 31? If God is for us, who can be against us? Where's your faith in the promise that nothing can separate us from his love? So do not fear. Verse 74 tells us that. We must serve him without fear. Isn't that what the prophet Isaiah said in chapter 41? Verse 10, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So rather serve the Lord in holiness. In holiness, verse 75. In righteousness before him all our days. So what does that entail? What does that mean? Holiness and righteousness, serving the Lord in that way, does not only mean reading your Bible and spending much time in prayer. It also means paying your taxes. It also means honoring your parents. It also means taking care of your widowed mother or making sure that she's, she's taken care of. That's what Jesus did. He paid taxes. He honored his parents. He took care of his widowed mother. So to, to be holy means that, in a, it's, it's practical. To be holy and righteous, as 75 tells us, to be holy and righteous also, it does not merely mean turning away from what is evil and bad. It also means pursuing what is good, doing what is right. Not only don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, run away from that. No, it also means pursue this, do that, chase that, love that. And actually, it does, not, it does not even mean only doing good. It also means being good. It means being a changed person, being a new person on the inside, so that you have a friendly character, a character of friendliness and loyalty and gentleness and the rest of the fruit of the Spirit. And you will only get this right. This is only possible. It will only become possible if you remember, you are doing these things in God's presence. Verse 75. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days. 
So if you live in this way, you start living in this way, I'm in the presence of the Lord. Uh, when I get up in the morning, when I go to bed at night, when I go through the day, throughout my whole day, I'm in the presence of the Most High, of the Holy One. And then you'll start living a holy life if you have a new nature. and You will start doing righteous deeds. And you will also long, you'll have a longing inside of you to be in the presence of the Lord forever. To live before Him all your days, not only on earth but also in heaven. And then you'll have something that many people in the church today does not have. People who sit in churches, you will have a longing, a longing that Jesus Christ will return, that He will come again to save us from this world. You'll have that desire for Christ. There's a crown laid up for me, and not only for me, but for all to all who have loved Christ's appearing. So if you love the appearing of Christ, what, what happens then is Christianity now becomes to you more than a religion. It's more than a religion. There's a heart's desire for Christ. There's a hope for Christ. So for you it now becomes not a something, Christianity, not a religion. It, it's, it's about a someone. A someone with whom you have a personal and deep and intimate relationship. A someone that, is, that you can say, He is my hope. He is my heart's desire. And as you well know, this someone, His name is Jesus. And it is this Jesus about whom John testified. It is this Jesus who came, who came as, as John prophesied. John who is the prophet of the Most High God. And He comes to Prepare the way of the Lord and to speak of the coming of the Messiah, verse 76. And you, child, now speaking of John, will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will be, go before the Lord, meaning the Messiah, Christ. He's the Lord, to prepare His ways. And He will cry out, The King has come! The King has come! He is here! Make ready the way for the Lord. Make ready to meet your God. Prepare to meet your Savior, your Messiah. That was John's message, as we see in Luke 3. And what he wanted to bring, and what he did indeed bring, was a knowledge of the Savior and of His salvation, the great salvation that Christ brought. And the way He saves is by bringing the forgiveness of sins, Verse 77, John came to give knowledge of salvation to his people, to God's people. In other words, pointing them to the Savior in the forgiveness of that sin. That forgiveness that Jesus himself brought. And John baptizes them with a baptism of repentance, pointing them to the Savior who can forgive sins. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And actually it's shocking, really. Verse 77 is shocking. God, John preaches this message of the knowledge of salvation to God's people. God's own people do not know the way of salvation. This is what it's saying. John needs to tell them that the way of salvation is Jesus of Nazareth. And in the same way, it's shocking today I've heard this over and over. People sitting in evangelical churches who cannot tell me the gospel when I ask them. And so our gospel preaching must not start in the streets. It must start in the church. And I am all for street preaching. 
I do it myself. I am all for street evangelism. I am all for going out and sharing the gospel with those who have never heard. Yes, we must do that. But what a sad day when we go to the Gentiles and the Jews themselves do not know the message of salvation. So it comes first to the Jew. The gospel is the power of salvation to everyone who believes first to the Jew and then to the Greek. And so that's why John came and that's why Jesus came first to the Jews and Paul and the apostles and then it went out to the Gentiles. And so in the same way we should preach to those who sit here and yes, also go to the streets, but do not neglect, do not neglect preaching the gospel in the church. And we must tell people, we must tell these people, God is, God is not an angry old man sitting in heaven thinking of ways he can punish people. He is the merciful God, filled with compassion and mercy. Verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God. That's why he saves. Verse 77. That's why he forgives. Verse 77. We cannot earn the salvation. He gives it as a free gift. Through Jesus Christ. Who died for our sins on the cross. Verse 77. Forgiveness. 77. Salvation. Because of the tender mercy. 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 You cannot earn this. Titus chapter, chapter 3. In verse 4 and 5. When the goodness and loving kindness of our God, God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. Exactly what Luke 178 tells, tells us. Mercy. And the bare fact that God initiated the salvation, that God thought up the plan of salvation to save sinners, shows you He is more than willing to save you. He is more than willing to save lost sinners. He sent John to preach and to point people to the Messiah. He said, John, tell them that that Messiah will forgive their sins. God, because of his tender mercy, verse 78, did this. That's the point. That's the point of John Bunyan's book, The Jerusalem Sinner Saved. The point that Bunyan is trying to bring home here in the book is, Jesus told the apostles, when Jesus returned to heaven, he said to the, the apostles, you go and preach this gospel everywhere, but you start in Jerusalem. Why? Because Jerusalem, the people in Jerusalem were the worst of all sinners. They were the most wicked. They were more wicked than the Gentiles. Why? Because they killed the prophets. They crucified the Messiah. After all God's goodness, they rejected. They spit in his face, literally. They spit in the face of their God. And rejected their Messiah. They killed him. And so when Jesus says to the apostles, you preach this message of salvation, and you start in Jerusalem, Jesus was saying, I am so willing to save sin. I will start with the most wicked to prove to the rest 
If I can save them, I can save you. Verse 78. The tender mercy of our God. You see, the problem with sinners, the problem with sinners is that they are suspicious. They're suspicious thinking, this God just wants to punish me. I don't believe it when he calls me to say, come and I will save you. There's some trick up his sleeve. And so they don't come. They don't come. And obviously they love their sin, but they don't come. And it's for this very reason we should not only preach the law to bring people to conviction of their sins. Yes, we do preach the law, Galatians 3 verse 24, but we do not only preach the law, we preach the mercy of God. We don't stop at the law, we continue preaching and preach the gospel of the love of God in Jesus Christ. The tender mercy of our God, verse 78. John Bunyan says in another book, it is not the over-heavy load of sin, but the discovery of mercy that makes a man come to Jesus Christ. Behold how the promises, invitations, calls, and encouragement like lilies lie around you. God has mixed all these things with his own name. With his son's name. Yes, he has mixed all these things with the names of mercy, goodness, compassion, love, pity, grace, forgiveness, pardon, and what not. That he might encourage the coming sinner. Encouraging sinners, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me. Come to me. So go and tell sinners, God has sent the Christ. He has sent his special one, his anointed one. He has sent his Messiah to save us from the darkness of death and to rise upon us like the morning sun. Verse 78, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness. And in the shadow of death. Sitting in the shadow of death. Psalm 107 verse 10. Sitting in the shadow of death. He brings them out of these, this darkness. Says the psalm. Continues the psalm. He leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. He helps those who are in prison. He breaks their chains. Those who sit in darkness. Isaiah 42. Though I sit in darkness. And the enemy gloats over you. The enemy laughs at you. I will rise. The sun will shine upon me. The sun of righteousness will shine upon us. It will rise upon us with healing in its wings. A great light has come. I am the light of the world. Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. What more persuasion do you need? What more encouragement do you need to come to the Savior, to Christ? And unfortunately, some of you cannot say that to others. You cannot call them to the light. You cannot tell them that the light has come to save us from darkness and from the chains of death because you yourself are still in the chains of death. You're sitting in darkness yourself. You're so skeptical. You do not really believe. 
that the Lord can take you out of darkness and shine his light upon you. Maybe you're even a Christian and you're skeptical about that. I don't believe it can happen. I'm in the chains of death, chains of sin. I'll tell you all about that tonight. Come back, please. If you are only willing to believe in the Lord, if you are only willing to believe his promises, he will reveal his mighty arm to you. And then you will see that no sin is too great, no sin is too much that he cannot forgive you. Nothing you did in your past and nothing that you can do is greater than the saving grace of Jesus Christ. So what is holding you back? What is holding you back to come to Him today and to lay your sin at His feet? Now perhaps you say, my sin is holding me back. I must first leave my sin before I can come to Jesus. You are thinking wrongly. How are you going to get rid of your sin without Jesus? I must first leave my sin before I can come to Jesus. No! Come to Jesus with that sin and ask Him to break the chains. So the solution is not that you should try and solve the issue yourself. The solution for you is to bring your sin to Jesus so that he can free you from it. Ask him then, Lord, lead my feet into the paths of peace. Verse 79 at the end. To guide our feet into the way of peace. Lord, lead, my, lead me into the footsteps of righteousness. And until you do that, unless you do that, you will never have peace. You will never be in the way of peace. Verse 79. And you'll always be at war with God and at war with others and always battling with your own guilty conscience. And it's sad to say that, unfortunately, many people only discover this salvation, this way of peace, when they are 25 years old or 30 or 40 or even older. So do not do this injustice to your own children and the injustice to the children in this church. Let us not do them the disservice of leaving them to discover this only when they are 25 or 30 or 40 or older. But let us teach them from a young age that they would learn the scriptures and learn to know their God from a young age. The God who saves sinners, just as John the Baptist Verse 80, the child grew and became strong in spirit. And I think, yes, it's strong in his own spirit, but it was certainly through the Holy Spirit, as verse 15 says. Let us get to know the God of Scripture, as he was in the wilderness until the pub, day of his public appearance to Israel. And when, you, when we teach these children, and when you teach your own children, don't teach them, merely teach them moral lessons. David was courageous. David was brave. You must be brave. No. Let us teach them about Jesus. Let us teach them the gospel. Let us teach them the gospel even in these Old Testament stories. You tell them, God defeated Goliath through, through, through David. 
It was God's mighty power who slew the, that slew the giant, slayed the giant. <coughs> and you tell them that that very same God killed a much greater enemy, struck a much, much greater enemy, broke the power of a much greater enemy, the enemy called sin, the enemy called Satan, and death and hell and the world. And he did this when dying on the cross for sinners. He became man. And we have all sinned against him. We are his enemies. But he will forgive us if we turn to him, if we pray to him, if we believe in him, if we trust in him. And so your children will not only grow physically, but they will learn to know the God of Scripture. And oh, we pray that they will believe in Him, repent and trust in Him, and grow spiritually like, spiritually like trees. Be strong in spirit like verse 80, John the Baptist. And they'll grow like trees planted by streams of water. And then at a young age, we pray that Jesus will be their hope and their heart's desire. Like the story I did not, well, I heard it, first hand from the parent I met a boy three weeks ago four weeks ago a 14 year old boy and his dad told me how his son got saved when his son was young quite young maybe eight or seven and for for a number of years as he grew up in a Christian home and his father's a pastor there was great conviction of sin and he struggled and he said and he could tell you the gospel perfectly with perfect clarity but the son said I don't get it dad I, I, I just can't see it I don't get it I don't know how to believe and so the father and the mother started praying for their son and they kept on sharing the gospel but they, they started praying this prayer Lord give him faith open his eyes open his heart enable him to believe as Philippians 1 verse 29 and Ephesians 2 verse 8 teaches and so they started praying this and then one night when he was 10 years old, they had a special meeting at the church for young people. And they invited children from a children's home and the gospel was explained. And this kid, this pastor's kid sat there and there was a video presented with a wonderful explanation of the gospel. And as he sat there, he understood. And when the meeting was over, his dad stood staring out the window and suddenly his son was behind him and he got a fright. And his son said to him, Dad, it happened. And the dad said, what are you talking about? He said, I get it. I believe. And the dad said, what happened? And he said, when the gospel presentation was going on in the video, I got it. And then I went to the bathroom and I locked myself in the toilet and I prayed and I said, Lord, if you will save me, I will serve you. And he did, Dad. He saved me. I believe. And that child has grown so much, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, loves the Lord, delights in the Lord, and Christ is his heart's desire. So let that encourage us to pray for our children and to pray for the children in this church not only that they will come to know the Lord, but that they will come to know Him at a young age. And obviously for that to take place, well, we as parents and we as adults in this church and older Christians 
we should set the example that they can see that Jesus is also our hope and the desire of our hearts. Let's pray. O oh Lord, You are the desire of our hearts. You are the hope, Christ in us, the hope of glory. I pray that you would draw sinners to yourself in this very moment. Those who hear the sermon, whether it's live, whether it's the recording, whether they read the sermon on the blog, Lord, draw them to yourself. Draw them to your Son. Let your Son rise upon them with healing in its wings. Amen.